Thanks for joining us for Life Community Church. Well, good morning. My name is Dan. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the lead pastors here. Thanks, Cindy, for announcements. Appreciate that. Well, we are, uh, we get to start a new series today. I love starting new series, sis, series, size, series. Um, just good to get into something fresh and new, and it's so good. Um, so we are starting a series called Following Jesus, Snapshots of Transformation. And uh, it's just, we're going to look at just ways that people have been transformed throughout the book of John. So we're, there's tons of scriptural stories about people being transformed. We're going to stay in the book of John. We're going to look at a few people, people just like you and I. I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we look at the Bible and we think that these people are like, so holier than us, you know? But there are people just like you and I who have been transformed by Jesus. And so today I have, I have great news for you. Today you get two sermons for the price of one. <gasps> now that doesn't mean that you have to stay here for like three hours. I'm not going to do that to you. Just one hour. I'm just kidding. Not even one hour of a sermon. Um, I'm smashing two into one. So we're going to do kind of the intro of why we're doing this series and then I want to show you our first snapshot of transformation. Before I get there, um, if you're on Facebook, and you can be in here and be on Facebook if you want and join the people in the chat, um, I want to know, I want you to write, write down there in the comments what your favorite Halloween costume has been. Maybe it's one that you made for your kids, got for your kids. Maybe it's one that you wore yourself as a kid. Write that down. What's your favorite Halloween costume? Mine is for my kids. We have this little pumpkin that they wear. It's like this cute little adorable pumpkin for like a one-year-old or two-year-old. I don't know how old you have to be to wear, but cute little pumpkin. They're adorable. I'd show you a picture, but I couldn't find one. Um, but we kind of transform on Halloween, right? Just for one night. One night only, we transform. Today, we're going to talk about the transformation that we experience throughout the lifetime of knowing Jesus. In John 8.36, Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And this is what we're celebrating around Easter as we go into Lent, into Easter. We, we celebrate the freedom that we've received in Christ. And so this whole series is one that leads us through Lent into Easter in much the same way that we did Advent. It's kind of this leading up to the celebration of what's about to happen as Jesus comes as we celebrate on Christmas, the same kind of thing is happening here. Lent is a season celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ who sets us free. Yet it's not a complete and total anticipation to celebration. It's also a season of repentance, turning away from the things that we've done or have not done that grieve God. Um... You know, Ash Wednesday was a couple weeks ago, and if you've been to a traditional Ash Wednesday service, you know that the minister, they put ashes on your forehead, and they'll say, from dust you have come, to dust you will return. Repent and give your life to God. During Lent, we confess that we're mortal, that we're finite beings from dust to dust, and the only way that we can have life is through and with God. And I would add, just not eternal life after we die, but also life as it's meant to be, like a full and beautiful life here and now. In John 10.10, 10, 
Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it to the fullest. Life to the fullest here and now. We get to experience the transforming power of Jesus here and now in this life. And so this is at the center of the celebration of Easter. Jesus transforming us to be like him is why is the why behind the what. We rejoice in his resurrection because it is only by his victory over sin and death that we are able to be transformed. And this transforming power that raised Jesus from the grave, it's the same Jesus, we're told, that lives in us through the Holy Spirit and is continually at work to conform us daily into the likeness of Christ, to be like Jesus. But how do we actually start that process? It's a nice concept, it's a nice idea, but how do we actually start that transformation process? How do we experience the resurrection of Jesus in ways that change our daily lives and impact our relationships, our jobs, our entire way of being in this world? One of the gifts that we have is Scripture. We have this whole thick Bible with these tiny thin pages and uh, tiny print. You guys have, have you guys seen like those tiny little Bibles that like pack all of scripture in this tiny little print Bible? We have this whole Bible to guide us on our way. We have the scriptures that tell us these different stories of people's journeys towards transformation. And we can see in its pages different accounts of different people just like you and me that have experienced lasting change. So we'll study a few different stories from the book of John of actual people and their interactions with Jesus and how that transformed them when they decided to follow Jesus. And this transformation, it's not just a small lifestyle change or a little tweak to the things we do or don't do of habits. This is the kind of transformation that transforms a caterpillar into a butterfly. You're the, you're the same creature yet completely different. A new creation. We read uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And with that transformation comes a freedom that we can only experience with Jesus. In Acts 13, we read, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know, that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Friends, the living God is in the transformation, change, and freedom business. So maybe you're asking then, why are there still tears? Why aren't we all laughing and worry-free all the time in church? Why do hard things happen? And Something gets in our way. It's deep in our hearts. It holds us back from the change we need to thrive as people doing life on this planet. Uh, and so human beings, we're, we're fascinating creatures. We're made in the likeness of God and the image of God, we're told. We're something divinely fashioned, and there's something unique about us all, but there's also a work within us that the Bible calls sin. 
And sin is our propensity to miss the mark of God's design by making ourselves the center of the story instead of God's goodness the center of the story, instead of God at the center of the story. We're designed to worship God, to honor God, and be transformed into his likeness. So what is being like Jesus like? What's it like to be like Jesus? When we look at the life of Jesus, we see, you know, if I were to say, what's Jesus like? Kids, they would tell me he's perfect, he's kind, he's good. All those things, and all those things are absolutely true. In addition to that, I would say Jesus is emotionally whole. Jesus isn't afraid of the future. Jesus trusts the Father no matter what's happening around him. When we watch Jesus' life in the Bible and we see what being like Jesus is, we're like, wow, life would be a whole bunch easier if we were all like Jesus. Maybe you've looked around and you've said, man, I wish that person was more like Jesus in my life. You ever thought that? A thought that Jesus might not think himself. And then there's you and me. You and I, we work hard. We influence people. We handle our pains and struggles in such a way that our, that our personal desires, our selfish desires, not God's, are often on the throne of our soul. And that's where the trouble begins. The majesty of each one of us is overshadowed, eclipsed, and even marred by sin's work in our lives. We're not self-aware. We harm others. We're not emotionally whole. We damage our relationships. We're not unafraid of the future. And we try to force circumstances on people um, to get our own way. We're not perfectly trusting of the Father, and we end up trusting ourselves way more than we should over God. When Paul talked about how sin works in us, he says, this is what he says about himself and also all of humanity. Really, I know you felt this. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do but what I hate to do. In other words, our hearts have a sickness and only Jesus can heal it. For Jesus' transformation was and is a freedom process beginning in the heart. If we haven't experienced the healing or liberating love of God, then we'll never be able to experience the freedom of his love, the love of God, the love of self, the love of others, the love of creation around us. And so transformation is something Jesus promises again and again throughout the Gospels and is the opening of one's heart to being changed from one way to being like God, to being uh, a selfish creature with ourself on the throne, to having God's goodness and kindness on the throne. And it's a process that takes a lifetime. And the Holy Spirit is behind that amazing unseen work that brings freedom and I can be a witness that when God starts something, he always finishes it, every time. At the same time, he never seems to be in a hurry either. It's not this snap-of-the-finger transformation. That's not how it works. It's the Spirit of Jesus working inside us. And the Spirit works on us for a lifetime. This isn't a one-and-done situation. We don't just have one encounter with Jesus and we're good to go. If we allow it, our life can be a constant encounter with Jesus. We can live life with him. And we'll have many, many transformation moments throughout our lives. So this Easter, we're looking at a few stories of transformation from the Gospel of John. And each one 
is meant to reveal one way in which transformation can happen in our own lives, inviting us to follow Jesus into wholeness and a fresh way this Easter season. So I want to get into this first story of transformation. And before I start, I just want to say that I have really seen this uh, story in, in a new light for me. I've really enjoyed this story, and I, and I hope I communicate that today. It's the woman at the well. Um, some of you have probably heard this story. If not, then fantastic. I get to tell you a story for the first time. It's awesome. So we're going to be in John 4, the whole chapter. And so I really recommend if you've got a device you can open up the Bible on, open up to John 4. If you've got a Bible, open up to John 4. Um, there's so many verses in here, it'd just be helpful to follow along, but I'll have them on the screen as well. So here it is, John 4. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. That's John the Baptist. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize him, them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at about noontime. Do you ever picture Jesus being weary? Like, he's human, 100% human, 100% God. And he got weary from his long journey, so he sits beside this well. This happens in the region of Samaria. Um, on a well-known plot of land. You guys remember Jacob and Joseph? Jacob gave his uh, son, Joseph, a beautiful co a coat of many colors. You guys probably know that story. Well, he also gave him some property with this land on it, we're told, um, in the region of Samaria. And so to understand this story fully and completely, we've got to understand the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so if you've ever heard a story, uh, the, a sermon on the Good Samaritan, or maybe the woman on, at the well as well, you've heard that Jews and Samaritans do not like each other. And I want to share with you some reasons why that is. I always hear Samaritans don't like the Jews at that time, and they clashed. But no one really ever told me why. So I want to share with you why there is this like deep-seated hatred um, between these two people. Um, first, let me show you, a, can you put up that map? Um, I want to show you the map of Samaria. I know it's small, but um, I'll try and show you here. So you've got Jerusalem kind of on the bottom here, and then you've got uh, Sychar, that's where the story happens, uh, where that little uh, boop is. And then uh, you've got where uh, Jesus and Peter called home way up there by the Sea of Galilee. And so they're right in the middle of those two places. That's where the story is taking place. And the reason that Samaritans hated the Jews, Jews hated the Samaritans, were because the Samaritans were seen as half-breeds, not real Jewish people. Like they were kind of like fake Jewish people or uh, an abomination to Jewish culture because of how they worshipped, because of how they lived, because of who they married. It started back when Assyria, another nation, invaded their land, took a whole bunch of people away to be slaves. They went into exile. And then the Assyrians, as countries do, sent their own people to colonize the region. And so they started intermarrying with the people that were left behind. And the Jewish people in like Judea, which is Jerusalem area, they were like, ooh, no, 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 you can't do that. That's bad. 
Um, and then the Assyrians, the Samaritans, they intermarried. They started having some troubles with some different things. And they're like, well, maybe if we worship the God of Israel where we're living, then things might go well for us. And so they start doing that. And the Jews are like, whoa, you're Assyrians. You can't worship our God. No way. Can't do it. And so they get mad at them some more. Um, the, the, the Samaritans start bringing in idol worship as well to their territory, which the Jews judged, which, spoiler alert, they did just as much, but they didn't uh, convict themselves of that. They just told the Samaritans they couldn't do it. Um, they claim that the mountain, they both had different mountains where they built temples, and each one said that that was the only true place to worship God. We'll see that in a second. Um, Jesus addresses that story. And then maybe one of the, another reason would be, you remember the story of Nehemiah when he builds the wall in Jerusalem? He rebuilds the wall, he rebuilds the temple. Um, really fantastic story. Well, the Samaritans were the ones who were trying to stop that from happening. So they would come attack his wall, they would come attack the temple and, and try and destroy it. Um, and so there was this, uh, literal blood feud between these two peoples. And this is just the groundwork for the blood feud. Like generation on generation on generation, one, you know, one generation hurts the other generation and then they escalate the next generation. They escalate again. And so now you have this, this place that's not even safe for Jesus to travel to. Um, so the scene is set here. Jesus shouldn't be there. In fact, uh, he took a, a different road before. You see the little red road to the right that goes over the Jordan River? It's a nicer road to take because you get to be next to a river the whole time. You don't have to um, go into Samaria. You can go around it, and then you go up to Galilee. So he's taken that road before. This time he go, decides to go straight up um, through Samaria, a place where he shouldn't even be. So the scene is set. We have Jesus sitting alone by a well in enemy territory. John 4, 7. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans, as we found out. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Have you guys um, ever been on Facebook or Instagram or something and there's a picture and then there's a comment below that just says, comment when you see it. You guys seen those? It's like, what's wrong with this picture? I've got, I've got one for you here. Show them the next slide here. Um, I think it's, a, yeah, here we go. I'm going to give you eight seconds to figure out what's wrong with this picture. Are you ready? You guys online, you can comment in the comments. I'm going to do one, two, eight seconds. You can shout it out. Ah, hand on her shoulder. Nice. Awesome. So uh, there's a man's hand on the woman's shoulder, but there's no man there. So they photoshopped the dude out and then left his hand there. That's what's wrong with this picture. We'll do one more just for fun. What's wrong with this picture? You got eight seconds. The wheels are moving in a parked car, unless that's about to do a wicked burnout. That car has spinning wheels and it shouldn't. That's what's wrong with those pictures. The same thing is happening here in Scripture with Jesus. 
as the original readers would see this, and they know that Samaritans don't have dealings with Jews, as we see right there, same thing's happening. Something's wrong with this picture. Here's what we see. Jesus, he's already known as a holy man. He's already known as a rabbi, a person who follows Jewish law. Everybody knows that about him. Um, and so the most devout Jewish men wouldn't allow a woman to be alone with them like that. There's too much risk of a rumor being started, of a scandal happening. So they just avoid that. Wouldn't even talk to the woman, would find somewhere else to go. That's the first thing that's wrong with this. Second, she's a Samaritan. We already know, not cool. We don't associate with Samaritans. That's like elevates the risk of scandal even more that he would be talking to a Samaritan woman. Then on top of that, he asks for a drink. And he doesn't have anything to drink with, as we'll see later. And so he would have to share her stuff to drink from, which would ceremonially make him unclean. He would become an unclean rabbi. He'd have to go through a whole bunch of ceremonies to purify himself because he touched something unclean. Huge hassle and really frowned upon. So you just don't share a vessel to drink with, with a Samaritan, um, let alone a woman. So that's our second thing. They don't get along. They shouldn't be together. Uh, And then third, based on the given time, which was noon, uh, this woman is, as the kids today would say, sus. Um, a thousand 15-year-olds probably just cringed at me for saying that, but I don't care. I'm cool. Uh, which is how they say suspect. This woman is suspect. She's, why are you there in the middle of the after- afternoon? Um, why are you by yourself? Why didn't you come in the morning with the rest of the woman as a group? So there's something weird and suspicious about this woman coming at this time of day. And we'll find out why that is later. Yet, Through all of that, Jesus engages her in conversation. So we read in John 4.10, Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is really deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, You don't think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. If you're a If you're that woman and you're hearing this, you're like, whoa. So she says, please, sir. The woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Jesus is frequently misunderstood by the people he interacts with. Jesus, and this is natural, Jesus is talking about the things of heaven to earthly-minded folks, and that's going to cause some mixed wires. And Jesus isn't a fool. He knows this is happening. But this is normal and expected as we begin to understand what Jesus is doing, bringing the things of heaven down to earth. So when Jesus tells her she should have asked him for living water, she, of course, understandably misses what Jesus is talking about. In addition, the phrase in Greek, living water, the original languages was written in, 
that phrase living water is like us asking for fresh water or spring water or good water, not stagnant water. And so it's not like she just misses over the weird thing that Jesus said by saying living water. She's responding appropriately to what Jesus said. It's just like asking, I need fresh water. I want good water, not nasty Muhammad water. Just kidding. Sorry, Muhammad. Sorry. Um, so it's, it's a pretty normal thing. And so then Jesus goes on to explain what this living water does and how it's different than just well water. And he talks about who it's available to and how it happens. He replies, oh, and then she replies, well, give me some of that. I need some of that water. I don't want to walk to this well every day. You guys have a chore that you hate doing? Facebook people comment. I've got a lot of things for Facebook today. Um, you have a chore that you hate doing, one that's just like is always happening. That's what this was for this woman. Like she had to go to the well every day, get water. One of the chores that I, um, man, that I really don't like is laundry. I mean, in a house of five, it feels like it gets all put away. And Liz is probably rolling her eyes. I'm not looking at her on purpose. She's probably rolling her eyes because she does most of it, but we're trying to split it more. I'm trying to grow in doing the laundry. Um, so I admit my failures, and I'm sorry. Um, but when it is my time to do the laundry, it's just like, oh, not again. So that's what this woman's feeling. I got to go to the get water every day. And then maybe on a deeper level, she's feeling the shame that comes with that. Um, the shame of going to get water by yourself in the midday sun. Uh, maybe some judgment of people saying, yeah, there goes that woman. She should go get water by herself. And then on top of that, maybe the most miraculous thing is that Jesus is saying it offers eternal life. And so, of course, she says, give me some of that water. And then Jesus responds to her after she says, give me some water. He says, go get your husband, Jesus told her. She said, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands. And you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Real quick, let me interrupt here and tell you that uh, this word prophet doesn't necessarily mean like uh future teller or fortune teller. It has a little bit of that. But in scripture, a prophet is someone who, um, the role of a prophet is the one who is a voice of God. Uh, their role is to represent God and declare his values. And often that meant convicting people of their sin. And so the way in which this woman is using the word prophet is its fullest definition that he knows something about her that only God could know, and that he is convicting her of, of what she's done. And so the woman says, So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while the Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? You see what she's doing here? A little subject change? She doesn't want to talk about her sex life. Who, who does? And so Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when no longer, it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. I wonder if it's implied a little bit here, like, is that you? The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Like That's the ultimate, well, who can really know? I guess we'll just have to wait till the Messiah comes to tell us. The kind of like, kick the can down the road. And then Jesus reveals something to her that he hasn't told anyone else outside of his closest disciples. He, he reveals to a woman, a Samaritan woman, who's supposed to be his enemy, who's not even, the Jews would say, not even a real Jew, some kind of half-breed. He reveals to her, after she says, well, who can know? We'll know when the Messiah comes. And he says, I am the Messiah. I am he. And then in this beautiful moment, the disciples bumble on up. Oh, hey, Jesus, do you want some food? And interrupt our moment. <laughs> and so here we have Jesus and this woman having such a powerful moment. I don't bash the disciples or anything. I just think they're funny. They get back from their food. They get back from uh, getting the food and they say, Jesus, you want some food? So I don't know exactly what happens, but I can put myself there as the woman. And I wonder if she's just like frozen there, kind of replaying this conversation she's just had with this interesting man in her head after he said he's the Messiah. This Jewish man talked to her didn't care about the stigma of drinking with a Samaritan. He knew the pain, the shame that she carries around from having husbands, from making poor choices, or maybe things happening to her. I don't know how it went, but I do know she carries shame. And he didn't run away after he knew that. He knew the pain. He understood and even after he knew that, he wasn't put off by her past. In fact, he used a very endearing term, dear woman. The, the same term he used with his mom, dear woman. He was endearing to her, not judgmental. And then he said, it doesn't matter who you are. As he's talking about worshiping on the mountain, he says, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what lineage you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you. It doesn't matter what you carry in your soul as far as shame and sin. Spiritual freedom is yours, he says to this woman. Life-giving water is yours. And so she thinks about all that, and she's just like, I don't know if she's embarrassed the disciples came up or what, but she drops her water buckets and just books it into town as fast as she can. She ran into town the Bible says. It says, The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back into the village, telling everyone 
Come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Do you hear the question that's still there? The doubt that's still there? I think that's okay. I think that's maybe even expected. And we can learn from something like that. That we can still bring our doubts to Jesus. We can still bring our shame to Jesus. And the transformation doesn't start, that transformation process, it doesn't start before we get to Jesus. There's nothing that we have to clean up or, or make look pretty before we come to Jesus. There's nothing we have to do or not do before we come to Jesus. We just come to Jesus and give it to him all. Just say, here's all my junk, Jesus, and we're still holding it. And the transformation process starts right there and then. The transformation process in that woman, despite her doubt, had begun. She thought enough to go tell all of her friends or the people that judge her all the time. Without shame, she just went in there and said, Hey, come see. This guy might be the Messiah. The transformation begins when we say yes to Jesus. This woman had said yes to Jesus. This woman said, yes, give me that life-giving water. And that's when her transformation process started. And so I think Jesus, watching all this happen, you know, like the woman, picture this in your head. The disciples walk up, woman drops her buckets, runs into town. Jesus is watching this happen. I'm going to say that the town is over here. And Jesus is watching this happen. His disciples are over here. And Jesus is considering, like, what's happening What's in his soul as this woman starts her transformation process? Jesus said that he has come so that we can have life to the fullest. This woman is about to have life to the fullest for the first time in maybe ever. That shame is about to leave. She's about to choose Jesus. So what's happening to this woman? What's happening to this village? And what is Jesus seeing as it happens? Jesus said that he's come to proclaim the good news to the poor. He's been sent to proclaim freedom, to set the oppressed free, to heal spiritually, physically. He's here to proclaim God's goodness. And so that all of that is about to happen for these people The Bible says that these people started streaming out of the village. My translation, NLT, says streaming from the village. So these people hear, and they're like coming out. I kind of think that this happens a little bit quickly, this this whole scene. From when she drops the buckets, she goes, tells people, they start to come out. She's still telling people there. They're starting to come out to see Jesus, and Jesus sees this happening. He's like, it's happening. It's happening. And it doesn't make sense because Jesus should be declaring himself the Messiah, not to the Samaritans. He should be doing this in the, in the Jewish temple, in the courtyard, saying, I am the Messiah. Instead, the first time that he reveals himself to the public is to the half-breeds. It's to the people that the Jews don't think matters. It's to the people that uh, probably still worship idols and don't fully understand God yet. That is who Jesus is declares himself too. And so I think he is just pumped. The mission is about to start. The very reason why he came is about to happen to the Samaritans. 
And so the disciples, they come bumbling up and they're like, hey, Jesus, do you want some food? And Jesus is over here like, yes, it's happening. And the disciples are like, Jesus, you want some, you want some food? You haven't eaten since yesterday. You got you to gotta eat. And Jesus, I think, is just over here like, yes, the woman's going to tell all her friends, guys, do you see this? This is awesome. Jesus, you got to eat. Come on. So it says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Before I read this next part, when I read this in the past, here's how I read it. I was, I was telling a friend over lunch this week how I used to read this scripture. Until this week, I would read it like this. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food that you don't know about. My nourishment comes from doing the will of the Father who sent me and from finishing his work. I've always thought, that's weird, Jesus. That's weird. No one says that. No one talks that way. But here's how he's saying it. He's saying it with enthusiasm and excitement and passion for what's happening to this woman, what's happening to the people. And so Jesus replied, I have a kind of food that you know nothing about. The disciples say, did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples ask each other. And Jesus replied, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me finishing his work. I, I, this is how I picture it. I don't know if this is how it happened or not. I'm going to ask Jesus when I get to heaven. I see him. I see him being badgered by his disciples to eat something. I see him watching this woman. And he finally turns around. He's like, oh, right, food. Guys, listen. I have this kind of food that you don't even know about. I am so pumped right now of what's happening. You guys ever get really excited about something and you forget to do something important? You forget to eat, maybe? I think that, that can happen. Where you're just so excited that something's happening. You're so excited and enthralled with whatever you're doing that other things just aren't important. And that's what I see here with Jesus. He goes on, uh, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, Four months between planting and harvest, but I say wake up and look around. The fields are ready, are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are getting good pay. I'm too excited. The harvesters are paid good wages. Remember, the people are streaming out of the village at this point. The fields are already ripe for harvest. And the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both planter and harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will go gather the harvest. As these people are streaming up the mountain, I think he's inviting his disciples to go do the harvest. I just think Jesus is thrilled and stoked for his mission to start, for his mission coming to fruition. I say, wake up and look around, he says. The fields are already ripe for harvest. What joy awaits. And now you will go gather the harvest. I wonder if he's like, you disciples, you guys better finish your lunch fast because we got work to do. I wonder if the disciples like joined in Jesus and they like got up, they put their lunch down, started ministering to the people. This is all speculation. I don't really know. I just wonder. Started ministry, ministering to these people. They got done ministering to these people after a few hours and 
They're like, whoa, we forgot to eat lunch. Let's go finish our lunch. You know, like maybe they felt the same excitement that Jesus did after they started participating in this heaven stuff, in this kingdom stuff. We get to do the same thing, you and me, with our neighborhoods, with our workplaces, our families, our friends. How many people around us are like this woman or like this village who are seeking freedom, who are seeking a Messiah? They might not say that, but they're seeking what the Messiah brings in spiritual freedom, in, in uh, freedom from shame. They're, they, they need heaven things. Like this woman, she experienced grace. She experienced the, the acceptance of heaven. I want to invite you this week and going forward, maybe every day, just asking God, hey God, where are you working in people's lives around me and where can I work with you in their lives? Is there, like, is there a Samaritan woman around me? Maybe I know nothing about them. Is there someone that you want to have an encounter with and I can be a part of that? Ask God that. Ask him this week. So then verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days. He was just supposed to pass through. He stayed in the village for two days. Long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that indeed he is the Savior of the world. I think there's a lot of people in our lives that are waiting for that kind of freedom, that are waiting to say, now we know the Savior of the world, the freedom that he brings. These people had found freedom in the Son, who the Son sets free are free indeed. They've experienced kingdom things. They experienced the healing physical, spiritual, emotional healing from heaven. They experienced the acceptance from heaven. They hadn't been accepted by the Jewish people for a thousand years. And here is a man, a rabbi, teaching something completely radical, that they are accepted and loved. Friends, the same thing is available to us today. That same kind of transformation that the woman experienced that the villagers experienced, that maybe the disciples experienced in that moment, even though they've been following Jesus for a while, that same transformation is available to us. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time, you've been following Christ for a long time, that same transformation is still available to us. It's a lifelong process. These disciples, they've been following Jesus for a while. Yet I think they, they had a transformation experience right there of their own. Villagers, the woman experienced Jesus for the first time and had a huge transformation moment. Those are all available to us today through the life-giving water that Jesus offers us. And all we have to do is say, Jesus, give me that water. Nothing else, nothing you have to clean up, nothing you have to do or start doing, stop doing. That's available to us. It's available to you and me. Let's pray. Jesus, 
This story is crazy. It starts with a, a woman <laughs> just getting water and ends to like a whole community experiencing you. That's nuts. That's awesome. Jesus, we want that in our community. We want that for Muhammad. We want that for Champagne and Urbana. We want that for all of our communities. It starts with us in our neighborhoods. So show us. Show us where you're working. Show us the, the women at the well people in our own lives. We want to work with you in their lives. We want to be a part of them coming to know you as the Savior of the world. Jesus, we just ask for more of heaven things, more of your heavenly things, your heavenly transformation in our lives. Amen. At Life Community Church, we want you to experience the powerful, life-changing love of God. To learn more, go to lifemohammed.org. lifemohammed.org.